Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Do you feel overwhelmed by your digital devices? Do you constantly have an itch to check your phone even when you're trying to focus on important work or interacting with your loved ones? Do you find the constant onslaught of opinions coming from the digital ether psychologically tiring? Do you feel like your inner life and grasp of existential meaning becomes more shallow the more time you spend online? Well, at one time, my guest on the podcast could say yes to all of those questions and decided to do something about it. Her name is Christina Crook, and she's the author of the book, Joy of Missing out finding balance in a wired world and today on the show christina and i discuss the promises and perils of digital technology her experiment with quitting the internet for an entire month including no email and tactics you can take to master technology rather than being its slave lots of great insights in this episode to curb your digital addiction after the show is over check out the show notes at aom.is slash jomo that's j-o-m-o for links to resources we can delve deeper into this topic as well as links to resources to curb your digital addictions again aom.is slash Christina Crook, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so your book is called The Joy of Missing Out, Finding Balance in a Wired World, and it's about our, our relationship with digital technology. Um, it's a topic that's near and dear to me because I'm always thinking about my, whenever I'm on my smartphone and my kids are like, Dad, get off your phone. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happened to me? Um, and you, you talk about the goods and the bad of technology, but particularly the bad and what we can do to avoid the bad of technology while still enjoying its uh, benefits. Um, but you start off in the book talking about, you know, one of the arguments is that technology, particularly digital technology, has created new burdens in our lives. Um, so what sorts of burdens has digital technology given us? I think the most obvious burden is the burden of always being available, you know, always being on. And ironically, our fear of missing out, you know, it drives us to miss out on a lot of moments in the real world. So I think that's the primary burden is sort of this never off culture and sort of this we almost wear it as a badge, this frenzied pace, you know, I'm so busy and always being hurried. Um, you know, these time-saving technologies are supposed to be there to save us time and, and indeed they do, but, you know, then it allows us to do more and more and more each day. Um, and obviously we'll get into a conversation about social media, um, but of course, 
it could never end. You could be online 24 hours a day. So I think that's the, the primary burden that I often think about and I write about in the book is this, you know, always on culture. And that's a very new phenomenon. Yeah, it's psychologically exhausting. Yes, overwhelming. Right. And it not only just being on all the time, the, the other thing that internet does is it just gives us as much information as we want as, you know, we think that'd be a great thing, but that's actually like, that's not a good thing to like be able to access anything you want to know that actually is burdensome. It's true. And actually studies have shown that you actually don't have a psychological or emotional benefit to having more information if you are unable to do anything about the information that you have. Um, and these were studies, you know, even back in the 50s with newspapers, you know, we think if we have more knowledge and more information about what's happening in current affairs around the world, last week's a perfect example um, with the, you know, the election unfolding, right? Sometimes information, especially when you're powerless, isn't necessarily um, to our benefit. So um, I think it's really um, understanding how much we can actually consume and act upon and um, interpret and understand, that's a helpful way, I think, to think about our media consumption. Right. I mean, one, a perfect example of having too much information, not be able to act on it is whenever, whenever you feel sick or your kid's sick or complain and you go online to like check the symptoms out and you're, you're just given all this, oh my gosh, my kid has cancer. And it's like, wait, no. Right. WebMD, WebMD. Right. Not always the best. Not always the best. But but you also argue that while tech, digital technology frees us from burdens, so you know, it saves us time. We can implement these algorithms that can help us find things faster. Um, there's if, then, then this, where you can kind of create these cool little hacks to make your day more streamlined. You argue that there's some burdens that we should not want to be rid of. Um What's what sorts of welcome? What sorts of burdens are those that we don't want to remove from our daily lives that we actually get a benefit from, and it makes life more flourishing? Mm-hmm. I came across this idea from a philosopher named Albert Borgman, and he writes about this idea of good burdens. You know, techno optimists are looking to looking to a future where we're free, you know, of the burdens of work. So they're constantly creating new technologies to automate and expedite. But there are some burdens we should not want to be rid of. And so Borgman talks about, you know, the burden of preparing a meal and getting everyone to show up and at the table and sit down and eat it, or the burden of reading poetry to one another or going for a walk after dinner. You know, they may seem burdensome at first, but it's actually just a task of getting across a threshold of effort. And as soon as you've crossed that threshold, the burden disappears. So, you know, we, we shouldn't want to be rid of the burden of relationship and having people rely on us. Actually, there's huge value in in that and um, in terms of our emotional um, and mental health, um, you know, we can't live in isolation um, and our connections online only take us so far. So I think the good burdens that I'm often thinking and writing about is the good burdens of people, of community and of also of physical work. There's real benefits to physically moving our bodies and doing physical labor. I was out raking a ton of leaves this morning and someone was saying, don't you hate that? Don't you hate that job? And actually, I really enjoy it. I like getting I like to physically work my body. Um, it's the athlete in me, you know, and so we shouldn't want to be rid of all of these, you know, we could say they're burdensome things, but really, again, it's coming back to the idea of it's only a burden until we get a, across a certain threshold of effort. Right. So it seems like these burdens um, or embracing these burdens is embracing an embodied sense of ourselves, right? Yes. I feel like the internet 
disembodies us. We can be anywhere, anything we want, right? No one on the internet knows you're a dog, um, right? The old New Yorker cartoon. Mm-hmm. So, but how, so how does this disembodiment that occurs when we use digital technology, how does it make us existentially miserable, even though it's touted by these techno-utopiasts as, a, oh, this is going to be fantastic? I think it's that things remain really elusive. There's sort of two things I want to touch on here. Um, there's a great quote I love from, from the comedian Louis C.K. He says that the worst thing happening to this generation is that they're taking discomfort away from themselves. You know, when we're, you just touched on it with this disembodiment that we experience being online, you know, things remain really elusive. And um, David Sachs just came up with a new book called The Revenge of Analog. And he talks about, you know, that we're developing an appreciation for analog things, like a paperback novel is a better option for us because it actually cannot interrupt our reading, you know, to tell us the weather. And so um, because the internet is literally endless, and and I think we're going to get a little bit later into the conversation on sort of time and space, but, you know, boundaries, less is the strategy for survival and even thriving in the digital era. So um, things are really elusive online. You know, we think, you know, we talk about building trust and building our brand online and being, you know, I'm air quoting right now the word authentic, right? That overplayed word. Um, but really, it's often in an effort to build a brand, a personal brand or a professional brand. And so we can only really trust that um, persona, the things people are putting out on social media or their blogs or, or whatever to a certain extent, right? It's But it's a bit elusive because we don't actually have, in most cases, a face-to-face relationship with that person. So I think that really does play into this sort of existential thing that's happening in terms of, you know, embodiment and disembodiment. And, you know, we're human beings. We were, you know, we're here in a in time and space in a physical world. And I believe that's where we need to really exist primarily. Um, and that saves us from a lot of, you know, the mental mental health issues that come with being overly exposed to being online. Right. I, I love your point about um, it makes it makes life too easy. So we think that's that'd be a good thing. But yeah, psychologists are finding that we need a bit of stress in our life to actually be healthy. If we take that stress away, we feel just unmoored, I guess is a good word to say. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you talked earlier about some of you know, these techno utopiasts. I think that's what Nicholas Carr calls them. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they're they're talking about this future where you know there's AI is going to take over and we'll, we'll be living in virtual reality and there's these there's all these benefits of the internet that sound amazing, but what are some of these touted benefits of digital technology? What of what what which ones are the which one of them are actually illusions? Like when you actually embrace it, you're like, man, this is not really a good thing. This is making my life more terrible. Yeah, I think the internet as a whole does not sell a, a universal promise, except perhaps that you can find literally anything there. But I think it's the specific websites and platforms that tout the benefits of being there. But it's all driven by the bottom line. And we know this, right? The reason why Facebook has added all of these real-time updates to their website, you know, you can see these green dots of when your friends are online and, you know, real-time posts and all of this is because they're designed to keep you there for as long as possible. So, I mean, as much as it's a huge value to literally access the knowledge of the universe (laughs) through a portal in front of our faces, you know, um, 
it is endless and it, it it could go on forever. And so I think for me, the real um, way of breaking out of that is viewing the internet for what it is. It's a tool, you know, it's a tool to connect us to information, to people. Um, and when we keep it sort of in mind as it being a tool and we're not being used by it, but we're, we're actually choosing to use it. I think that's a really helpful way to keep that boundary. So let's go to that, this idea that you mentioned earlier about um, disrupting our sense of space and time. How has the web done that? Oh man, when do, it's some, oftentimes, I, I don't know if you ever feel this, but you know, you can be surfing the web and almost feels like you trend, you know, you've, I, you've gone beyond the limits of space and time. You know, we can talk to people in real time, um, like my sister in Australia on the other side of the world. Um, It's phenomenal what it enables, but it does, and I've got young kids, and I'm going to give an example with with kids. My kids are ages three, five, and seven. Um, and, And studies show that when we spend more and more time in front of screens, it actually makes the physical world seem boring and dull, you know, and even muted because the colors are not as vivid and and things move more slowly. And so I think that it's important that we realize that the limits of time and space are actually to our benefit. And um, when we were talking about earlier about the techno-optimism of, you know, finally breaking free of the limits of the body, um, is that actually what's best for the human person? Is that really what's best for people to flourish. I don't believe that that's true. Right. And you mentioned earlier how we, everyone talks about feeling really rushed and busy, which is weird though, because, you know, studies have shown we actually have more free time um, than our grandparents did. Um, Right. Yet despite that, we still feel like, oh my gosh, I, I don't have any time to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, just this week, I did a screening with a filmmaker named Suzanne Crocker. She does this um, beautiful documentary called All the Time in the World. And it's actually about a family that goes completely off the grid for nine months in the Yukon um, wilderness. And they talk about how they spend actually up to half of their day preparing food right? That's the real cost of actually eating and preparing food. Um, And pretty much all of that is erased with our modern day conveniences. You know, this morning I threw, you know, toast into a toaster and it was done in two minutes. Um, You know, so the more time-saving devices we have, they just allow us to do more. So we do. Um, But often we're filling that time with passive hobbies, you know, like watching Netflix or, or um, scrolling through our social feeds. So um, we have more margin, more margin, but we fill it. We fill it. Yeah. The web makes it easy to fill. Very easy to fill. Yeah. I've had moments where I'm like, oh, I'm going to get so productive. I'm going to take a little five minute web surfing break and it's an hour later. I'm like, oh my gosh, what just happened? I can't believe that happened. It happened. It happens to us all. And I thought another interesting idea you hit on was that, you know, living our life on the web can actually reduce our sense of self, which is weird because on the web, it's we're, we're creating ourselves all the time with our Facebook profile, with the, the, the images we decide to post on Instagram, where we want to fashion this really cool image. Um, but how can that act of creating ourself on the web actually reduce our sense of self and identity? I was thinking about this question. I think the most stark example for me is um, in Japan, they have a term for a person who basically spends their entire lives in front of 
in, 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 on the internet and they're called hikaromi. And um, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but basically they're completely socially isolated individuals who no longer leave their homes. And there's actually millions of people like this um, in Japan. Um, internet addiction is extremely high in Asia and it's increasing all the time. And um, in terms of their sense of self, their entire sense of self, for these individuals is found on the internet. And some of them are internet superstars, you know, they're known, um, you know, known in the sense of they are, they have a, um, a, a presence on the internet, um, but they're actually not known in their physical sense by anyone, or at least only by a couple of people within um, this place that they dwell in and they never leave. Um, and so I think that, I mean, that's such an extreme example, but there is a sense that we are losing parts of ourselves to constantly presenting a particular self online. And another example is Kendall Jenner, actually, um, from, you know, the Kardashian clan. Just recently, as of a couple, within the last couple of weeks, actually, it has uh, gone off Instagram and she she just felt like it was becoming way too consuming and she wanted to step away and I think that there is a, a growing sense that we can't present our entire selves on the internet we simply can't because we're living breathing people and so um, I'm actually really thrilled and excited that that's becoming a bigger conversation and more and more people are sort of queuing into that right and I feel like too you, you need us you need you need privacy to sort of experiment and figure out what yourself is instead of trying to figure it out online. So I feel like online, like it, it, you can't, you can't, you can't experiment online. Like once it's online, it's there. And if you decide to change, people are gonna be like, wait, no, there's no takesy backsies. Like you were like this person, uh, you know, a week ago, you can't change your mind now. But with, when you have a sense of privacy, a sense of, I don't know, I don't know, secrecy. I mean, that's, that sounds like kind of bad, but like you can experiment with your identity a bit. Mm-hmm. I know. I had. I, I like that you touched on that because I actually had a bit of a breakthrough myself about three quarters of a year ago. We made a, a very big decision as a family and I automatically felt like I needed to broadcast it to the world because, you know, that's what you do when you make a really big decision as, as you know, an individual or a family, you kind of tell people and, you know, publicly doing it on the web has become the norm. And I realized through some conversations with some really good friends, you know, I can actually hold this close. This is actually a personal thing that I can sort of hold sacred and keep keep to ourselves. And and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and, and we can actually take our time in choosing what we share. And we might ultimately choose to not share certain things. And that's, that's our right. And um, I think that's very healthy. Right. But yeah, I think there's, a, yeah, there is a norm where you have to share everything. I remember with the election, Taylor Swift's fans got really upset that Taylor didn't share who she voted for. And it's like, she doesn't have to tell you, you know, that's her, it's her thing. What goes on in the voting booth gets to stay in the voting booth. Um, so going back to parenthood, you're, you're a mom of three children. Um, I'm a dad, I have two kids. Um, and that's like technology and kids is like the thing I'm always thinking about. I'm like, man, is my, am I letting my kids spend too much time on the iPad? Um, and how is my behavior uh, with technology influencing my kids? So what does the research say about how a parent's use of digital technology influences their children's use of digital technology? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So there's, you know, a growing body of research, which is which is wonderful to see. And I mean, I think across the board, we're seeing that um, it's kind of a case of monkey see, monkey do. You know, this isn't new. What children see their parents doing is what they want to be doing. There's little kids who, you know, they hold a banana to their ear because they see their parents holding a phone to their ear, you know, as early as one year old. Um, you know, if we if children are seeing their parents constantly on their devices, it is there's a draw. There's a draw for them wanting to use it. There's conversations around it. And then there's increasing battles around it. Um, there was a new study that came out just a couple of months ago around, um, I think it came out from the Pediatricians Association in the US, and it actually um, lowered the age of introducing TV and tablet uh, use to, I think, from age two down to maybe one or one and a half. Um, but if you read between the lines, which I did in this study, um, the, the difference was, yes, you can do it when they're younger, but you need to be sitting with them and engaging with them about, about what they're doing and what, about what they're watching and listening to on the devices and on, on the television and on the screens. Um, and there's uh, when we're engaging with them, we A, know what they're watching, right? I don't know if you ever run into this where you kind of hear from the other room, you know, some squawking and a television show from Netflix that you've never heard before. And it's like, what are you, what are you watching? Um, we need to be paying attention to what our kids are consuming. That's extremely important. Um, another piece is, you know, once you've opened the door, it's very difficult to close it. And the studies are showing more and more that introducing, you know, tech as, as late as you possibly can is actually to the benefit of children. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off 
their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And have they done any studies yet about what you know technology used by children, what it's doing to kids? Because it's so new that like we have these you know, the generation of kids who have just been raised on it. I mean, they have. I mean, and I they have like I think I've seen baby carriers with like iPad holders where they you know the parent can like put an iPad in front of their baby, and so they're immersed in this since you know birth. Even though you're supposed to do it, you know, not introduced until one. But have we found any studies of what this is doing to kids? Is it affecting them in any way? It is. It is. It is reducing attention spans. And and again, the longitudinal studies are still not fully there because we have to remember that it was only, you know, only 10 years ago that someone did the first tweet you know social smartphones were not even in common use you know until about 10 years ago and so the longitudinal studies are not there you know they are for television and I mean studies that are you know the longer studies uh, you know there's there's one very famous one with Sesame Street that tracked Sesame Street from you know the 50s through till you know recent like today and basically um, they watched how it sped up over you know over time it used to be extremely slow and it's actually painfully slow to watch now but it's you know the the screen change times have have increased five times fold and um, it is increasing um, it, it is reducing attention spans in children and that also goes back to this whole thing about um, how it affects the relationship with the natural world you know it is more difficult for kids to um, engage in outdoor and imaginative play when they 
are in front of screens for a long periods of time because they are used to being fed, right? The, the material and, and, um, and the storylines and the characters. Um, and so, you know, studies across the board definitely advocate for limiting our, our children's, you know, screen time. I think there's other studies too that, that show that suggest that uh, screen time also might decrease empathy because kids yes. get less practice reading faces and so they have a yes. harder time with that. Yes, um, there are definitely studies um, that talk about that. And actually, um, they there's a study that I write about in my book um, that shows that reading people is actually a learned skill. Um, a study looked at individuals judging forced and genuine smiles and found that older adult participants outperformed young adults in distinguishing between posed and spontaneous smiles, which suggests that with experience and age, we become more accurate at perceiving true emotions. And actually that's decreasing because kids are growing up in front of smartphones, actually communicating almost entirely through text messages and emoticons. And um, I have an aunt who's actually a theater actress and she coaches um, uh, younger um, actors that are up and coming and she's noticing, and this is actually across the board in um, in the theater industry, is these younger actors that are coming up are actually having difficulty um, with facial expression and tone of voice and body language, which are essential to, you know, communication, obviously, and storytelling. And as a performer, that's the tools of their trade. So, um, you know, that plays into their ability to even negotiate deals once they're in the workplace. Um, but, but definitely in terms of empathy, when we are, you know, looking at a screen and we, and then we look at someone's face and we actually can't read the emotion in them or we're not looking at them long enough to even notice if they're struggling or, um, you know, having a hard time, then that, that affects not only the individual, but it affects, you know, communities. So we're going to have a future of movies and plays with bad acting. I, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, so I'd like to get your take. You talk about a little bit, but I mean, what's your take on artificial intelligence and virtual reality? How are these going to compound the problems we're already seeing with, you know, the technology of the web? Um, honestly, I think that it is going to, it's going to explode. I really do think that virtual reality in particular, I just came off of, I was speaking at a, a tech conference just out of Toronto in September, and um, they had a lot of VR uh, people up there. And, you know, it's, it's quite phenomenal how much the technology has advanced. Um, and we're already seeing it in, in quite um, thorough use in the porn industry and in multiplayer role-playing games. And I think that um, we are going to see virtual reality really um, coming on the scene. I don't think it's going to be sort of a passing, passing fad. Um, and the fear for me is that it takes people so completely outside the breathing physical world that it will be increasingly difficult to be satisfied with you know, our muted and comparatively slow reality that we live in. And then with AI, I guess my big question is why? I wish more people were asking this question, like why are we working so hard to create AI? Why are we creating robots to re replace humans? I don't 
really fully understand. Like I understand the thrill of invention, but I don't really understand, you know, when isolation is already up so high, when employment is rising, because like we talked about earlier, we have more and more time saving work, more work is automated. Why are we working so hard and, and literally spending trillions of dollars on on developing these technologies? I It's a big question mark for me, to be honest. Right. right. We're, we're removing burdens that we might not want to be rid of. Right. Right. Yeah. Getting back to that conversation for sure. Yeah. Um, so part of the, your book, you, you took a 31-day break from the web. So you wanted to see if you can kind of disentangle yourself from digital technology and what that would do. You even took a break from email. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, at the beginning, did you have like this like really strong itch the first few days where you just like, I had to get back on. I got to check. I'm, I'm missing out. Like, what was it like? Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, if you're going to be off the internet for 31 days, and you might have heard of the story of Baratende Thurston, who's probably the most famous person who went offline um, for about the same amount of time, you know, you really have to prepare. You have to get map books because you can't Google map. You need a thesaurus if you're a writer because you can't use a thesaurus online. Um, you know, you have to tell people because all of a sudden you're virtually disappearing from the face of the earth. Um, you know, there's a lot of preparations that need to be made. I had set up a blog uh, about the experiment, which of course I was not updating, but I had a friend who was going to be updating it because I was sending these letters by mail each day and she was going to scan and post them. Anyways, I was feeling on day one and day two the writer and editor in me really wanted to edit and make some tweaks to the content on the blog. And I found that very frustrating at first. It was it was very limiting. And that was probably the first, um, you know, run in I had in terms of wanting to be online and feeling like I was missing out. And I was, you know, wondering, you know, what people were posting on social, who was getting my automatic email responder. Um, I would say that lasted a couple of days. But really quickly, it turned into this massive experience of freedom. It just felt super freeing to be completely unable to do those things. It was just off the table. Um, and, and the biggest thing I would say also that I discovered during those 31 days was just a quietness, a quietness of mind. My, my mind was just completely free of the chatter that I normally fill it with. Um, through searching on online and, and reading, you know, my social apps and, and all of that, and even online articles that are constantly coming out. So I really dug into deep thinking and reading, and I got a lot done. It was a very productive, I still had two little kids at that time, um, sort of underfoot, but I got a lot done. It's quite, it's, it's shocking, actually, when you take the web completely off the table, how much time it fills in a day. Right. And, you know, Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, talks about how, you know, the web changes our brain, like makes our attention span shorter, even for adults. Um, did you notice that your ability to concentrate, like, did it go up when you took a break from the web? Like you got back your ability to sit down and read a book for an hour uninterrupted? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I did. You know, I, I would read books at long length. Um, I would sit and write and and not lose my train of thought because I wasn't 
you know, even for as a writer, you would know this, you know, even you you go to research um, something. So you're, you know, you're you are, you know, doing your work, but you're researching and one thing links to another. Um, I did not have that ability. Um, I could I could research in books, but that's a very, very different experience. So absolutely. My ability to focus um, was it was hugely increased during that time. And then what was it like when you got when you started introducing the web back and did like it did that those things the superpowers you developed by taking your your 31 did, did it just go away immediately or did it kind of take a while it took a while um i mean i came back with a pretty clear strategy for how i wanted to come back you know it's sort of like if you did a water fast for 31 days you know you wouldn't want to have like a cheeseburger as your first meal um well maybe you would but uh <laughs> i didn't i chose to sort of take it to ease myself in um the first thing i did want to check was email because i am a free i do freelance write and and i i knew there would probably be some work related things i needed to 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 give my attention to there but i I immediately spent about half a day unsubscribing from um, a massive amount of um, newsletters and emails that I'd subscribed to over time or inadvertently, as you know, that happens, um, inadvertently got on, you know, lists. Um, I realized that even though I don't read those emails, you know, they blip across my radar. That is attention, even for that millisecond that I'm giving to it, to delete it or archive it or, you know, just pass it by. Um, so I unsubscribed from a huge amount of email. Um, I... I actually implemented new email strategies in terms of um, not checking it, you know, 12 times or 50 times a day. Um, I was checking it sort of two times a day. Um, that honestly has crept up, but that is a practice that I return to when I notice that I am I am losing my focus um, and I'm not getting the kind of work that I want to get done. Um, so yeah, those were some of the steps that I took when I came back, but it did creep back. I'm not going to lie. It did creep back. And I, so for me, the, the fast is really a touchstone for me to go back to remembering what it was like during that time and remembering, you know, the, the practices that I came back to the web with and, and trying to return to those things. Well, so, you know, you don't advocate that people completely ditch the internet in your book, um, but you, you talk about putting constraints. You just mentioned a few of the constraints, um, you know, unsubscribing mm -hmm. from lists. But what are some other things that people can do to put constraints on the, you know, what is effectively infinite um, culture, information that's on the web? Mm -hmm. I think it's... It comes down to, I mean, we could talk about all of the time-saving apps that are out there and, and all of these types of tools, and they are out there, and I'm happy to talk about them, but I really think it comes down to a more of an internal um, understanding of ourselves and, and our purpose in the world. You know, we aren't just here to consume for consumption's sake. You know, we are here for relationship and meaningful work. Um, and there's things that we want to do, you know, there's things that we want to do with our lives. And so I think if we, we look at the internet for what it is, like I mentioned before, that it's a tool, you know, that's really helpful. I kind of have a few things that I wanted to mention, um, you know, using the internet as a tool, putting people first, like truly putting people first in every instance, having a meeting, being with your kids, being with your partner, you know, valuing the human person in front of you over the gadget in your hand. They just are more valuable. You know, the person on the other side of the world that's tweeting in that moment, they are also a valuable human being, but the one that's sitting in front of you, you know, give them your full attention. Um, another thing is practicing discipline. I've, I've already touched on this, but, you know, having um, times built into your week that are just completely tech-free. Um, 
I love to tell the story of Tiffany Schlein. She's the founder of the Webby Awards and her and her family practice a technology, what they call technology Shabbat. They're Jewish um, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown every week, you know, and she's the founder of the Webby Awards. I sort of feel like if she can do it, we can do it. Um, she's lots of excuses to be constantly on social, um, but they carved that out and that is like a core piece to her week um, as a reset to really um, be deeply um, with her family and with herself, um, with her community. And um, I, I came across the article on the Art of Manliness website. Maybe I can give a plug for it, but it's your uh, article about FOMO. And you've got four really great questions there. And um, I just had a couple more questions, if I may, add sure, yeah, I'd love to, to your list. And yes. um, a great question to ask before you post something online is, who is this for? You know, is this for you? Is this for promotion? Is this for ego? Um, you know, is this to promote something like it, you might have a really good answer to that question, but asking that question first, you know, who is this for? Um, the second question is, what could I have been doing with this time? You know, what if, if we've, you were talking about, you know, you go to check social for five minutes and, you know, an hour later, you know, don't beat yourself up about the hour, but ask yourself at the end of the hour, you know, what could I have been doing with that time? That's time um, that you could be giving to things that you really want to do. And the last question might be a bit, you know, strange, especially for a very manly podcast. But the question is, um, what brings me delight? You know, what are the things that really delight me? And what are the things I really want to be doing with my life? And, and who are the people and the relationships that delight me? And that comes um, from a quote from Marcus Aurelius that says, a man's true, and I'll leave it as a man, in this case, a man's true delight is to do the things he was made for. Um, and so, yeah, this idea of delight, my book's called The Joy of Missing Out. For me, this conversation keeps coming back to joy and delight. You know, what are the things that really delight us? What are the things that really bring us joy? I think those are really our, our guiding, guiding principles for the ways that we should be spending our time. I love that. So, yeah, when you say yes to technology, you're probably saying no to the thing that will actually give you delight. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, you mentioned specific, you know, tactics and strategies. I mean, I mean, any, any tools that you found uh, found that are useful to constraining your web use or how much you use digital technology? Yeah, I have a very analog way of doing things. Um, I actually write a list on a physical piece of paper of the things that I want to get done online before I start, before I turn my screen on on my computer, um, and I try and check that list off. Uh, as quick as possible, and then and then move on to other things. That's really been um, a really good practice for me. Uh, I think also using your autoresponder, not just for vacations, but um, for sort of setting expectations for people on when you will return email. Um, even if you return email four times a day, you know, having it in that, you know, you check it and return it at 11 and 1 and 3 every day. Uh, it could be once a day. It, it totally depends on the demands of your work, but using autoresponders. Um, and also, you know, you've got a lot of people that are in leadership roles, I imagine, on this podcast. And I think it's really important if you're in a leadership role, if you're a CEO or you're um, a manager of any type to really lead by example. Um, if you are sending an email to your um, 
you know, your staff at on Sunday at 3 p.m., they're going to get that email. And if you're in that role and you're senior to them, they're going to feel like they have the obligation to respond to it immediately. You know, if you don't want them to respond to it immediately, write that explicitly in the email or don't send the email until Monday morning, you know, when, when you want them to re return it. I think we really need as a culture, a work culture, and also as just a community as a community globally to set parameters around our technology use. And it really does come down to leading by example. So those are some of the things I would suggest. That's fantastic. And one thing I love about your book, Christine, is that you, uh, you look to a lot of these great thinkers. I'm about to ask you a question I didn't ask you or put in the email. So if you have a hard time coming up with an answer, that's fine. Um, but you, you have these thinkers, like you mentioned Borgman. Um, I never knew who the guy was, but now I've, I've bought his books and I'm going to check him out. <laughs> I mean, are there any other thinkers, um, philosophers that you have looked to to sort of guide how you use technology and maybe they've had some insights that our listeners could probably get something from? Absolutely. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, but I actually also have recommended books at the end of my book. Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is just a delight to read his uh, series of essays, What Are People For?, is um, informed so much of my writing, um, and and I encourage you to read all of Wendell Berry's work. Um, you know, Sherry Turkle, her Alone Together, and her Reclaiming Conversation are both really important books. Um, and I would say, if I was to recommend any book, if you're just going to read one, uh, Jean Vanier's Becoming Human. It was a, a lecture series that he did here in Canada, the Massey Lecture Series, but it's um, a book now. And again, it's called Becoming Human. And um, yeah, that book is a, a powerful book about, you know, coming closer um, to ourselves and to each other and, and what it really means to be human. So those were my recommendations. Fantastic. Well, that's great. Um, we'll link to those in the show notes. Well, Christine, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your book and your work? Mm -hmm. um, well, my book is available, you know, wherever good books are sold, um, but they can find more information at jomobook.com. And I'm just about to launch a new initiative called Daily Jomo. Um, and you can find that at dailyjomo.com and you can sign up to get fun prompts to get you away from your screen um, and sort of to retool your relationship with digital. So uh, I, I do hope that you head over there and, uh, and thank you so much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was Christina Crook. She's the author of the book, Joy of Missing Out. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about her book at jomobook.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, uh, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. And as always, I appreciate your continued support of the Art of Manliness podcast. Love your reviews. Um, that's one of the best things you can do to help this podcast out. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. 
and dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.